Hello and welcome to Off Campus History. I'm your host, Lewis Reedwood. Off Campus History is all about popular portrayals of history, that is, representations of history in popular media or claims aimed at the general public. Today we're digging into the history of urban planning in 20th century Canada and the United States. Particularly, we're going to discuss why our cities came to be oriented around car-dependent suburbs and what consequences that style of design has for our lives today. In this episode, I'm joined by fellow Torontonian, past off-campus history guest and now PhD holder, Dr. Hannah Suxdorf. Our conversation today responds to ongoing political debates about urban design in the greater Toronto area. Anyone living in southern Ontario knows that we've had multiple recent provincial and municipal elections, and we'll soon have another one actually, in which our urban design has been a major political issue. While our discussion today centers on these debates in the GTA, many of the themes that we're going to get into are applicable to cities across Canada and the United States. We get into why governments, businesses, and ordinary people took up car-dependent suburbanization in the mid-20th century, the roles of race, class, and gender in this history, and why this history matters for current political debates about these issues, as well as much more. I think this history is really important because the themes we get into today really impact how we all live our lives. I think you're really going to get a lot out of my chat with Hannah today. Let's get into it. All right. I'd like to welcome back to the podcast an alumnus of off-campus history, Hannah Suxdorf. Hannah, thanks so much for returning to the podcast. Oh, I'm honored to be back. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, it's it's great to have you back. Could you remind the listeners, It's it's been a while, can you remind the listeners what you're all about in terms of historical interest? By the way, since you were last on, completed your PhD in history at the University of Toronto. So congratulations on that. You're now Dr. Suxdorf. I am. Yes. Thank you, Lewis. That's probably the big update since I was last on. You may now call me Dr. Hana. I will also go by that. So you can now say I'm an alumna both of this podcast and of U of T. So finished my, my PhD in history. My research focus was religious conversion in 16th and 17th century Italy, although our topic for discussion today is a little bit different. And I'm actually currently working as a researcher and educator with a nonprofit that engages the public around the history of Asia in World War II. It's based in Toronto, also a new field for me, but I basically get to keep being a historian and an educator in a non-academic setting. So it's it's a pretty great gig, actually. It's a it's it's great for folks who want to keep learning and thinking about how how do we communicate difficult things about the past and engage the public around them. That's very cool. Hmm. I like that you have such diverse historical interests as well. That oh, yeah. Both of the podcasts that you've come on for are also not what your dissertation was about, which I think is great. Like that's not a that's not a criticism. I think that it's it's very cool that you have lots of different interests and stuff like Thanks, that. And Lewis. I think that this is a it's it's a good thing for historians to not just focus on their own little pocket only. Thanks, Lewis. I like that about me too. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're going to be talking a little bit about the history of urban planning, actually. And I was just curious, how did you become interested in this particular topic? Sure. Great question. So I think I think the seeds of this interest were there early. So when I was in, mm. even before I was really aware of it, when I was maybe nine, 10, 
while a lot of my classmates are playing Roller Coaster Tycoon on the computer or SimCity, I was playing Caesar 3, which is like SimCity, but for ancient Rome. So I think uh, the indicators that I would turn out to be a professional nerd were there quite early. <laughs> <laughs> but other, other than that, I think really just the experience of having lived in a number of different urban settings and in different countries, really just kind of my lived experience is what got me really thinking about this. So my first year, and in particular, actually, I lived in Italy a couple of times. So I grew up in, in the U.S. in a suburban area of Michigan. I lived my first year out of school in Chicago, urban setting which was a a really different built environment. And I started to sort of see and read more about history, the history of of planning and policy, and particularly seeing sort of racial segregation brought to light in front of me. And then I moved to Italy twice. I've lived there. I lived there for the 2012-2013 academic year, where I taught English at a high school outside of Milan. And I was really struck while I was there and when I came back by, I mean, a a number of things, but in particular, there were so many small local family owned businesses in the, in the U S politicians love to say that, you know, small businesses are the backbone of the economy. And you spend time in the U S and you're like, um, that sounds great, but it's not really true. Like our, the economy of the U S and much of Canada is predominated by big box retailers and mega corporations. And that was not the case in Italy. Yeah, have you have you seen the joke online that Canada is just three umbrella corporations in a trench coat? <laughs> oh my gosh. No, wait, what are the corporations? Oh, I don't know. I think it's just a joke about how like every industry in Canada is dominated by two or three monopolistic, you know, it's like telecoms or the railroads or the airlines or whatever, right? Oh my gosh, that's so true. Telecoms. Oof, you know? Yeah. I feel like memes memes take off when there's a, a grain of truth to them, and I, I feel that one. <laughs> yeah. um, but that's that's not the case in Italy, where phone plans are much cheaper. Right. Would recommend that about life in Italy, for one. Yeah, but so really noticing on my return both how how different sort of the economic landscape was, and also how much more spread out things are here. After my second time in Italy, this was 2018, 2019, I was there for nine months doing my my doctoral research. I spent a fair amount of time in Naples, which is one of the most densely populated cities in Italy. Italy itself it has a population, I think that's roughly twice that of Canada's, but in a much smaller geographic area. So it's just more dense generally, densely populated. And after getting back from Naples in particular, just feeling like everything here is so spread out. And also people move through space very differently here than they do in Italy, but that's kind of a separate topic. And it, it sort of a, a occurs to me when I hear people talk about, like you might hear tourists, North American tourists who go to Italy and come back. And sometimes they'll say, oh, I ate so much food. I had gelato every day, but like I lost weight and I felt great because I walked everywhere. And Part of that is because walking is is built into the common practices of Italians and, the, and sort of their cultural rhythms. There's this something called the passeggiata, which is sort of like a an early evening stroll you might take between the hours of five to seven before you have dinner. It's a chance to be outside, to see and be seen. But also it's because many of their cities actually allow you to walk everywhere and to live that way. 
And so I think really the experience of different urban environments got me thinking about how the layout of cities, like what forms of life those allow and what forms of life those foreclose and how do we get to where we are today? Yeah, those are really interesting observations sort of comparing the different places you've lived. I feel like I've had similar experiences living in different places and thinking about some of, some of these themes. Yeah. I grew up in Saskatoon, okay. which is, it's really a city defined by cars. The the public transit is not very good. It's it, it's just kind of like assumed that everyone can and will drive everywhere, exactly. basically, in, in how the city sort of works. And I did my master's program in Calgary, which is also very much like this. Uh, Calgary is sort of defined by these huge freeways and very sprawling suburbs. And one of the frustrations of living there for me and my partner, actually, was that Unless you live in one of the really downtowny neighborhoods or or just a river that goes through Calgary. So so if you live right by the river, there's more sort of nice walking and biking and that kind of stuff. But right. if you don't live in those places, then you you often if you want to cross a neighborhood, you have to go over these weird overpasses over the highway and all this kind of stuff. And comparing this to to moving to Toronto even, which, you know, we're gonna talk about Toronto still has a lot of suburban stuff, but living in a place that has good public transit and things like that it has been has been quite different and there's there's less of an expectation that you're going to drive everywhere right i also did during my undergrad an exchange to birmingham in the uk okay and that that was an interesting experience for me thinking about the history of a city that is not defined by cars mm-hmm. cars being a much more in terms of the lifespan of the city, a much more recent introduction right. compared to like Saskatoon or Calgary or something like that. And sure. living there and living in a place that has an intercity train system that people regularly use and stuff like that was was quite different for me. So yeah. I feel like I feel like there's a lot of interesting observations one could draw living in different places and things like that. Oh, absolutely. Like I should state, I do have some academic training in this area. One of my comprehensive exams in U.S. history was about urban America. So, you know, I'm I'm not just somebody sort of spouting off my general thoughts. (laughs) But anybody can really become an expert and interested in this just by being involved in your community. And there's also some great urbanist social media channels out there. But I think this topic, like, sort of, I think, relates to everybody. It's about what you can and can't do with your time, how you yeah, how you move about in space, which we don't often think about. But I think kind of when you're taken out of your element, like living in, in England or in cities that are differently oriented toward transit or cars, you start to think about that a little more intentionally. It kind of forces you to. Yeah, definitely. I feel like the other thing that has been a big wake up for me about this is that mm. in the past... A couple of years or so, I guess. Not that I didn't do it at all before, but I, I've done much more commuting by bicycle. And biking a lot in the city has made me realize just how not designed for that the city is. Yeah. And, you know, biking in downtown Toronto, I've almost been hit by a car a lot of times, you know, stuff like that, right? So, Yes, 
I can relate to that. I'm a very much an aspirational cyclist, but I've never felt safe enough doing it in Toronto. So I applaud the people who can take that risk because it is a, it is a real risk. And it, I think what this history reveals is that it doesn't have to be that way. We can choose to do things differently. And this has been a big topic of public debate. I mean, this is sort of the, the genesis of this podcast idea is that our pop culture tie-in is essentially ongoing political debates. Yes, and yes. I think probably this applies where a lot of people live. It, it, I'm sure a lot of different cities and things like that have political debates about what they're going to do about the urban design, right? That's like a classic thing that goes on in municipal politics. But both both of us live in Toronto, and I think we're probably going to focus a bit on, <laughs> on Toronto on this podcast. And in Toronto and Southern Ontario, generally, this has been a big issue in the recent provincial election we had somewhat recently, and we also had a municipal election, and then we're also going to have a <laughs> municipal election again in a few months as well. And our current provincial government is, I think it's fair to say that they're very in favor of suburban development, favors the sort of what we might call building more like sprawling suburbs. And some of this has involved wanting to build the proposed 413 highway in Ontario. The current provincial government under Doug Ford is also interested in removing Toronto has this uh, region around it called the green belt which has certain protections against urban development that the provincial government wants to roll back so that they can build more like housing development there yeah and in general i think also in our most recent municipal debate or municipal election mm -hmm. there were debates about how should the city really be designed in terms of what is usable design mm. and so so these are sort of ongoing debates in our local politics oh yeah yeah absolutely the green belt is a big one i think there's there seems to be fairly broad consensus in ontario that the province the country in general but we feel it i think pretty acutely in ontario and especially in the greater toronto area we don't have enough housing for people there's not enough there aren't enough houses and there are a variety of reasons for that there are some questions about investors and speculators kind of just buying properties and then holding on to them. But basically, long and short of it is we need more housing. And one approach, the one that is more favored by the provincial government, is like you said, it involves more sprawl. So building out, typically lower densities, pretty car dependent, the proposals for the green belt would remove some of, would open up some of that land for development and then set aside land elsewhere the province sort of a switcheroo situation. The 413 was a really big issue in the most recent municipal or sorry provincial election. It was very popular with voters out in Toronto suburbs who tend to drive everywhere. They see it often as being in their interests. Whereas in my neighborhood in Toronto, which is fairly close to downtown, is very walkable, has great transit connections, not as car dependent. You still see signs opposing the floor at 13 in my neighborhood. Folks think it's a bad idea environmentally. It really speaks to how transit modes can also affect some of our political disagreements and divisions. So yeah, I think COVID has sort of exacerbated and brought to the fore some of these longstanding questions about sort of the health and sustainability of our communities. 
but there's a long history to that. Like that didn't come, COVID didn't cause that. It just has brought it to the surface. So hopefully today our conversation will help folks better understand where some of this comes from. Before we talk about that history, perhaps we should define what we mean by car dependent urban sprawl, I think is is sort of the, the concept. Because so our big question for today is essentially, how did Canadian and American cities come to be defined by these car dependent suburbs? But what do we mean by that? Great question. So suburbs in particular are not a new phenomenon. As long as we've had cities, there have been suburbs, which we usually think of as sort of communities on the urban periphery, on the urban fringe. And often as cities expand, they will absorb those suburbs to become part of the city. And then your suburban development happens further out. This happens, there's kind of actually an explosion of suburban development in the late 19th and early 20th centuries as major U.S. and Canadian cities are industrializing. You've got waves of immigration and the development of the streetcar, which allows people to live further out while also maintaining access to jobs and services in the cities. This is one for Saskatoon locals, who I know a few of my friends from Saskatoon and stuff listen to this. I learned that, so I mentioned earlier, Saskatoon is a, a city very defined by cars, the transit system is not very good. The public transit system is not very good. Mm-hmm. Saskatoon used to have streetcars mm-hmm. like about 100 years ago. At some point in its history, they were removed, which mm-hmm. is an interesting sort of addition to this. Yeah. No, but you're, I mean, so even in Saskatoon, which I, I don't know what it was like in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. Today, it's not one of the larger cities in Canada, but even a, so, uh, you know, a, a medium-sized city had networks of, of streetcars and public transit. So again, suburbs not new. And the the period we're going to focus on today is especially kind of 1930s through the, up to the present day, sort of, but like particularly the 30s onward, 30s through the 60s. The type of suburbs we start to see are much more spread out than your streetcar suburbs. And this is what we mean by car-dependent suburbia or car-dependent suburban sprawl. So what we mean by that term as you can guess, car dependent. So like you were saying with Calgary or sort of present day Calgary, cars are assumed to be the main mode of transit. And so all of our transportation ways are designed primarily for cars. Other modes of transit are often afterthoughts or our transportation networks might be inimical to some to walking or cycling, kind of like you mentioned with, with Toronto in cases. Cars require a large network of, like, they're big, they take up space. So car dependency is sort of part of and leads to low-density development. You've got houses that are more spread out, often single-family detached homes. There's a history to where that comes from, we'll get into it. But just for characterizing this form of suburban development, car-dependent, low-density, single-family homes, often on large lots, single-family detached Although I think the semi-detached, in my anecdotal experience, is more common in Canada than in the U.S. Usually in the U.S. we call them duplexes or triplexes. And it's also characterized by segregation of uses. Segregation on a few levels, but buildings of different types of uses are segregated by use and often spread out. So you've got parts that are strictly residential. Somewhere else you've got where you can go grocery shopping, somewhere else you've got your industrial areas. 
So if you want to get around to your job or to just kind of do the basic errands of life, you often have to drive. So it's characterized by low density, things being spread out, cars sometimes being the only real safe, the only real way to get around, and segregated uses. And certainly in the U.S., when this development really takes off in the 40s and 50s, racial segregation is also part of that. I I think that's a helpful introduction to frame what we mean by this for people. And I think one thing that is useful to flag at the top is that this was not just sort of something that developed without choices going into it, Mm -hmm. but that different groups of people actively chose to design our cities this way, right? And I think maybe we can think about this as, as... a few different groups of people and and what their what their goals and interests were. So I think we can maybe think about governments, businesses, and and sort of the economic forces more generally, perhaps, and the general public, the the consumers who are sort of moving into these suburbs and things like that. So let's start with governments. Why did governments in Canada and the United States opt for this sort of model of urban planning as opposed to other options? And maybe what are some of the specific policies they opted for that helped create these environments? Yeah. So this is a a big question. So I'll try, I'll do my best to keep this succinct and as systematic as possible. The answer to this question could easily be as rambling and as sprawling as our current, current cities are, but for the purposes of, you know, coherence, I'll take a stab at it. So some of this so I mentioned that these, this type of development starts to predominate in the 1930s. The preference for dispersal and sprawl, which is goes beyond just governments, in some ways comes as a reaction to industrialization in those major cities. I guess one, one policy this in particular relates to is zoning. Zoning is what means that we have segregated land uses. Zoning starts to take off in the U.S. and in Germany, but in particular in California in the late 19th century, specifically actually to restrict and regulate the location of Chinese laundries. This is a period of high anti-Asian sentiment in the U.S. and Canada, and so that shapes some of the early early zoning laws. There's also urban reformers are looking at urban reformers like, say, Jacob Rees, who famously publishes this expose of of tenement conditions in New York called How the Other Half Lives. He includes these photographs showing that conditions in a lot of urban tenements are really bad. They don't make for good and healthy living. They're, They're crowded, they're unhygienic, unsanitary, they have poor ventilation. And so part of the preference for sprawl and that we see this and segregated uses and zoning is to ameliorate the the perceived ills of industrialization. Some of that takes on an interesting moral tenor, I would say. So urban reformers, we also start to see kind of a a policy preference at this point for single family housing, particularly in Toronto, over other forms of housing like apartment complexes. So Toronto in 1912 actually bans the construction of most apartment buildings in most of the city. Hmm. And that is partly because of a, a belief that sort of your your a single family dwelling is is better for moral formation and i think also sort of the the separate spheres that defines the victorian gender norms of this period 
There's also a worry that small apartments can sort of be easily managed by single women. It's sort of, in a way, a small apartment is like an alternative to marriage for women. And that is something that some of these reformers want to discourage. So zoning has kind of complicated origins. It's a big part of, like I said, of sort of our car-dependent suburbia. It comes about for a variety of reasons. It, From its origins and to the present day, it really has the function of restricting neighborhood change and particularly protecting property values is often really the stated rationale. There's a lot of concern with making sure property values of commercial and residential buildings are going up. So that's that's some of what happens with zoning. There's also this and the zoning and the regulations, particularly in the 30s, become part of this larger project in both the US and Canada to revive the housing industry. So the depression hits in 29. Unemployment is incredibly high in the US and Canada. People are struggling. And there's a sense that to revive industry, we need to get consumption up. We need to help people buy houses so that that will get people employed and being paid wages. To illustrate kind of how bad the situation is, in actually in Calgary, Richard Harris has talked about this, the value of all residential permits issued in the entire decades of the 1930s was less than the value of residential permits issued in 1929 alone. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, um, I don't think Calgary is necessarily unique in that regard, but speaks to just how hard hit this industry and many other are is in this period. So in, in the U.S., the, the Roosevelt administration starts the Federal Housing Administration in the mid-1930s. Canada has something kind of similar with the Dominion Housing Act, later becomes the National Housing Act, but its effects, at least initially, are less pronounced than they are in the U.S. And what the FHA does, again, the main purpose of this is we want to revive this industry, get people buying homes so people are building homes so people are employed. The FHA provides insurance on mortgages for home builders, but they are actually both in Canada and the U.S., these programs are prioritizing new construction. So they will provide insurance on mortgages and loans, but only on new construction because that is what will get people employed, uh, newly employed. And that mortgage insurance lowers the risk to builders and to lenders. So they are able to offer long-term, in the U.S., 30-year mortgages to prospective home buyers with much lower down payments and much lower rates of interest because the risk to the lender is lower. However, the FHA also sort of, and is very explicit about the kinds of neighborhoods in which they will offer this sort of insurance. So again, there's a, um, a very clear prioritization of new construction, particularly on urban fringes, partly because land was simply cheaper there. So it was more feasible for the government and also was going to make prices lower for home buyers. And the FHA, until 1968, flatly refuses to offer this type of support for in predominantly African-American communities or in, in communities that they think are at risk of undergoing racial transition that might integrate and or might be sort of predominantly one ethnic group, but then become predominantly African-American. The underlying assumption is that Black neighborhoods are blighted, is a word that often comes up, and that the property values are just going to decrease 
because of the race of the homeowners. It's, it's a fairly explicitly racist assumption that is wrapped up in an economic rationale. So this is a huge part of what makes basically governments are subsidizing home ownership out in the suburbs in the U.S. There's also the a major, major federal highway act signed under Eisenhower, which is, is a huge reason how and why the U.S. has its federal interstate system to this day, national interstate system. It's wrapped up partly in the language of national defense. So the idea is that if the U.S., again, so I've, I've jumped ahead a bit from the 30s to the 50s to the post-war period, when there is worry about a possible Soviet invasion of the U.S. mainland. And so part of why we need these extensive, very wide and wide-laned highways is for transporting potentially military personnel. And this, this act covers about 90% of highway costs and leaves states to pay for the other 10. So, you know, if you're a state government, of course you're going to build highways and not transit or invest in other types of, of transportation. Hmm. The incentive structures sort of make sense in a way. Right. I recently saw a map online of, I think it was the Amtrak system from the 60s compared to like 2017 or something like that. Okay. And that was fascinating. I mean, this is this is more about intercity travel than, than sure. within a single city, but it sort of relates to the highways thing that it was really interesting to see how much more connected the train system was oh, yeah. 50 years ago than it is now, which, you know, you might expect that there might be at least the same number of routes, but there are many, many less. That, that's interesting. I'm not an expert in that. I wonder where that comes from. What I tend to see more often is um, like frustrated urbanists on Twitter will post maps comparing like rail networks over the entire continent of Europe with rail networks in the US mm. and how, how much more built out one of those are. And, you know, a lot of folks are like, we can do this in the U.S. It's not like yeah. there's, the people are there for it. The landmass is roughly the same. It comes from a certain a, a certain political perspective, certainly. But sorry, so so back to back to the question about the policies that are part of why we get this really common form of development up to this day. So I've talked a little bit, a bit about zoning, the FHA, the practice of refusing to provide this kind of assistance in certain neighborhoods based on a specific characteristic is called redlining. I think public awareness of this in the U.S. has grown actually a little bit since 2020 and some of the racial justice protests. I think it's become a little, little bit more part of the conversation and sort of popular historical awareness. So Richard Harris, who's a, a scholar of Canadian housing trends, has argued that redlining also happens in Canada from the 30s through kind of the mid-50s, but not around racial characteristics. It's more that the federal government refuses to provide mortgage assistance in neighborhoods that are underserviced, so don't fully have utilities, water, sewage, all of that in place. Right. Which tends to be implicitly a racial thing as well, right? Yeah, it can be. I, you know, again, I, I will try to be clear about things I know fairly well, things I'm still learning about. And I'll try to be clear about where I'm sort of putting on my historian hat or putting on my urbanist hat <laughs> and just, you know, me as an urban dweller here, here are some of my thoughts. Yeah. I think probably that, that point from Harris could be questioned and investigated, you know, is there not also a racial component to, to this the kind of the servicing criteria for that mortgage assistance? Yeah. So I think that's a very helpful overview of 
the government role in, in yeah. sort of creating this system and maybe what the government's goals were. Mm-hmm. What do we think about the role of business and consumerism? And I think presumably a big part of this story is the automobile industry. Yeah, that's a huge part of it. I think my my sort of top line response to this question is that the responses of these different groups, whether it's corporations, particularly the auto industry, business leaders in cities, consumers and citizens, all of these responses actually are quite changeable. They really change over time, particularly when the automobile first becomes common in cities in the 1910s and the 1920s. So a huge part of how we got to sort of car dependency involved shifts in how we think about city streets. Before the advent of the car, before driving became widespread, I should say, city streets were sort of seen as as public spaces to be shared by lots of different types of people. Pedestrians were sort of the natural denizens of the streets, including children. They Children might play on streets. That was perfectly normal. You did see some horse-drawn carriages as well as streetcars. But cars are really new in that they take up more space and they go faster and therefore are more deadly. So in the, in the 1920s in the U.S., which is, again, sort of early in the auto boom, I would say, over 200,000 people in that whole decade in the U.S. are killed by cars. Most of them are pedestrians. Many of them are children. So there's actually a lot of public outcry against cars in cities at their first introduction. Parents, like they're not safe. Literally last night, I was rereading The Wind in the Willows. This is a weird aside. Oh, I don't know if you've ever read A Wind in the Willows. Long which, time. Yeah. It, so it was published in 1908. And I totally forgot this part that there's a there's a section in the first in the second chapter of the book where Toad and his buddies are like riding a caravan along the road and then they get run off the road by a car and, and the caravan gets totally smashed up. Anyway, I just thought that it's, it's not really that relevant. I just thought it was kind of a funny story that, and this is from, this is from 1908. So it's almost like a primary source yeah. about like the dangers of cars at the time. That's, wait, can I, can I ask you a question about that? Yeah. When that happens in the book, how do the other characters react? Or like, how, how does the book treat that incident? So it's interesting. So, so some of, one of the characters, I think the rat, is very angry and he goes on a tirade about how he's going to report the car to the authorities. He's okay. like, I'm going to talk to the law. I'm going to, you know, Toad, this is the genesis of his obsession with cars, right? It, it, you may remember okay. from the rest of the book that he becomes fascinated with driving a car. He buys a car immediately after this, right? Oh. So he's sort of amazed by this spectacle of the car. Wow. Oh, that is fascinating. Yeah, I mean, so you're that actually yeah. I think illustrates fairly well some of the early controversies around cars. Some people are saying no, this is not safe, and are really blaming cars for that. And Peter Norton, who's a historian, has written about this and how the car car industry, car dealers try to sort of work within a conception, work within prevailing conceptions of the streets as a public space for pedestrians. But given the public backlash, they then change course and 
embark on this campaign to actually redefine what streets are and to whom they belong. And then also there's there's that part of it as well as the industry packages, and by industry, I mean, obviously, corporate leaders themselves, but also auto dealers, auto cars, there are people not, this isn't just your corporate elites that are part of this effort. Repackage driving in the language of freedom, individual freedom, it speaks to a lot of Americans. You know, the car represents the freedom to go wherever you want, whenever you want, you don't have to wait for a bus or a timetable. Yeah, you don't have to wait for a bus or a train. You're not bound to timetables and schedules. You can just go. And that that does resonate with quite a few people. There's also an effort to intentionally cultivate and fund and shape people in the urban planning space to redesign streets so that pedestrians are really, are, are confined ideally to sidewalks, to crosswalks. There are certain spaces where pedestrians are supposed to go and others where they're not. It's not just a free-for-all anymore. And I think perhaps most noticeably, jaywalking becomes a thing that is considered a crime. So there's there's essentially an effort by the auto industry or motor dumb is the term that Peter Norton uses to refer to this conglomeration of interests to shift some of the blame and responsibility for traffic accidents from cars to pedestrians, to people outside of cars. And so... You know, there are confined spaces where pedestrians are supposed to be. And if you trespass that, that is seen as a violation of, of law. I was actually just watching a video on a, a YouTube channel called City Beautiful, who is a he's an urban planner, uh, talking about the history of the rules of the road, which we might think of as really just sort of taken for granted. But rules about how and where to stop, who has right of way in certain spaces, those all come from a place. I was thinking about this recently when I was just walking along the side of the road and thinking about the the way that the road infrastructure works for cars is actually a really complicated language of symbols and stuff that, you know, had to be created, right? Like even Mm -hmm. I feel like it's so deeply saturated in our culture that green means go and red means stop that, that is something that we just kind of take for granted that that's like a real car thing. Right. Right. Yeah. Or, or we, yeah, I think we just assume there must be rules of the road. They, they must implicitly prioritize cars because cars are the fastest and the most dangerous vehicle out there. Again, none of that had to happen. None of these sort of outcomes that we deal with today were foreordained or necessary. But to get back to your, the question about, so talked about the role of the auto industry in the rise of this development pattern. To go back a little bit to, I'll talk about, go back a little bit more to zoning and to regulations around housing in particular. And then I'll talk about kind of mass consumerism in the post-war period in particular more broadly. So another area where we see sort of private developers, municipalities, lower levels of government, as well as some homeowners kind of taking part in the, the emergence of this development pattern comes with regulations around basically like the types of housing you can build. So not just zoning only for single family residential dwellings and areas, but also things like minimum lot sizes or minimum setback requirements. So rules that like you must have essentially a certain space of lawn in front of your home. Preferred floor plans are one that also often also come up. Rules that you can't subdivide your property and build more than one property on it, even if you want to. On, on sort of the more commercial side, you start to have minimum parking requirements which make it really, really difficult actually for, well, we can get to this in a little bit, but 
Some cities have started to eliminate minimum parking requirements for new businesses. Toronto did this, I believe, a year or two ago. So we'll have to see longer term what the effects of that are. Um, And Toronto has also started to allow what are called uh, accessory dwelling units, or at least in my neighborhood, I'm seeing several of those pop up. So homeowners can build a laneway suite or a separate property detached from their home that they can rent out and use as an investment property, which also provides housing to a city that desperately needs it. These regulations start to come about, particularly in the 1930s, as the federal government is looking to standardize the industry and provide security for lenders. They need to provide safety so that banks will invest and developers will build. And so setting these sort of these general guidelines are part of that larger project. Municipalities often take that up with their own local zoning bylaws. And then they're often also taken up in later decades by homeowners who are resistant to changes in their neighborhoods. This is sometimes called NIMBY or not in my backyard. I make this point to say that this isn't just a top-down imposition. There's also, this is a process that that people, homeowners, people of many different backgrounds are participating in. And then, so that that gets to regulations. This is also, I think we can also think about car-dependent suburbia as being part of this larger project of promoting mass consumption in the post-World War II period. So after World War II, particularly in the U.S., Elizabeth Cohen has written about this. There is really intense fear that after demobilization and converting to a peacetime economy, that we may revert to another depression. The depression is very strong in living memory for a lot of people. And it's widely accepted by not only corporations, but also labor and policymakers, lots of different groups, that to avoid a new another depression, we need to really get consumption going. People need to be spending money on stuff. That's how we will keep business going, people employed, and wages high. And so the 50s in particular is an era not only of increased home ownership, particularly for working class white Americans, but also of increased like kitchen kitchen appliances and gadgetry, dishwashers, certain types of vacuum cleaners. It all takes on this very futuristic bent. And this also is partly understood as in the context of the Cold War. So famously in 1959, Richard Nixon and Nikita Khrushchev engage. Richard Nixon, who was vice president at the time, and Soviet premier Nikita Khrushchev engage in something called the kitchen debate at this pavilion in New York, where Nixon is sort of giving Khrushchev a tour of the model U.S. home and kitchen, and is is basically saying this this tricked out, very comfortable kitchen and home are available even to our striking steel workers who have very modest incomes. We, our, the U.S. system of liberal capitalism is able to provide a higher standard of living than your Soviet communism, which indicates the superiority of our approach. This is proof that our way, our economy has made possible a level of comfort and affluence for everyone. Of course, not for everyone, because as I've mentioned, things like homeownership are really shut off from particularly Black communities in this period. But he talks about it as we have made this level of affluence and comfort and prosperity available to a wide, available to all. And that is proof, 
we offer much lever- higher standards of living than your Soviet Russia does, which is proof of our superiority. So some of this can be understood in the context of the Cold War in terms of the need to avoid a great another depression. Elizabeth Cohen, she mentions, as an example of this, she talks about this one particular news spread in Life magazine in May of 1947, and it shows a working class white family touring a home that they you know, would like to buy one day. And the text accompanying it really is both like very optimistic that this family will be able to do that, but also says that purchasing this home and these goods will not only increase their family's quality of life, but also promote, and here I quote, full employment and improved living standards for the rest of the nation. Hmm. So your personal consumption and keeping the economy going is actually, in a sense, an act of, of serving the public good. And active uh, citizenship is somehow how sometimes how Cohen talks about it. I think some of us, particularly folks who are worried about climate change, who look at sort of our consumption patterns and how car dependent suburban sprawl seems to really be exacerbating the climate crisis. We might look at this and think you almost think this particular system, this particular development style was designed to maximize consumption. And in a way, it really was. That was seen as a as a necessary and important goal, particularly in in the fifties and afterward. And we're still living with the consequences of that today. Thinking about your response there, I think that ties in really nicely with my next question, which was about why the general public chooses to participate in this, and why, obviously, not everyone, but a lot of people in the public choose to buy a house in the suburbs as opposed to live in an apartment downtown or something like that, right? Mm. And I think that we've touched on a lot of the, some of the reasons why that might be, right? Some of the reasons are related to buying into this culture of, or they they sort of really buy into this idea of like, you can live a more comfortable, more affluent life with all these, you know, space and and things like that, right? In, In your home. So I think that's partly the story. I think you also mentioned earlier, a little further before, yeah. the idea that suburbs are a, a healthier space, mm-hmm. and I think that that's a big part of it for a lot of people. Are there any other key factors that go into why the general public is interested in living in the suburbs? Yeah. So obviously, there there are huge financial incentives to do this for folks for whom this is available, particularly, mm-hmm. I think, for people who remember the Depression in this intense period of deprivation and insecurity to be able to go and own your own home. And I I should emphasize, even when we think about space and stuff being spread out, your, your first suburban mass produced homes in the fifties. So like Levitt town, for instance, this one particular developer in the U S named William Levitt, um, sort of pioneers an assembly line style of home construction and just is building thousands of suburban homes in Long Island. He's got another development in New Jersey. There's a few different Levitt towns, but these homes are actually, by our standards, quite modest in terms of size. There may be 900 or 1,000 square feet for a family of four. So even the sort of the sprawl of the suburban home itself is a more recent development. It's not necessarily baked into car-dependent suburbia. Hmm. But your question was about why people buy into this, huh? I see what you did there. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So 
Kenneth Jackson in Crabgrass Frontier, which was a book published in the 80s, which really I think was was quite important in talking about redlining and some of the policies undergirding suburbia. He also talks about some of the cultural ideas in the U.S. that make the suburbs seem quite attractive. So I think there may be some, again, some lingering long-standing aversion to cities as, well, not only places primarily of people, for people of color, which is off-putting to a lot of particularly white folks, but also that cities are are dirty, are unsafe, unhygienic, and that the suburbs are better in all those regards. Yeah, I am TAing the American History Survey course currently, and I which I've TAed before. And one thing that always comes up is that the idea that cities are this sort of immoral and un clean and and dangerous place but particularly the idea that they're an immoral place is a is a very long-standing idea in american history and you know presumably canadian history as well that basically and i don't think he invented the idea like thomas jefferson talks about this idea oh yeah and that obviously has a lot of race and class connotations to it yeah definitely that's a great point so there is kind of in in the u.s there's a long-standing idealization of of con- of the country, in a sense, countryside in a sense, and the suburbs seem to represent a really fortuitous meeting meeting point of country and city. You have the, the space and the, and the light and the sort of open air and land of the country, while thanks to your car and to these highways, access to services and jobs in in cities and urban cores. Part of the appeal also for so you've got upwardly mobile folks for whom home ownership is a way of building wealth over a long period of time, which is something they haven't had, particularly coming out of a period of insecurity and instability. There's also a perception that suburbs are good places to have good schools or should have good schools. I know when my parents moved to the suburb where I grew up, part of that was because the schools were great. And they were great. I went to awesome public schools, but there's there's often a desire. There can there is a desire for good schools, low property taxes, mm. urban part of it, paradoxically kind of high property values at the same time. So, for a lot of upwardly mobile white working class folks in particular, and you know others who would like to have bought into that American dream, this it both makes a lot of sense financially to do this as well as for the health, like culturally and morally, I think, for their families, they think it makes sense. Yeah. We've talked about a few of these, but are there any other aspects of race, class, and and gender to this history? I think particularly one thing we haven't touched on is the role of gender in like mm. the the culture of making suburbia appealing to the general public or suburbia being appealing to the general public. Yeah. Where it sort of goes alongside this idealized vision of the nuclear family and mm-hmm. dad has a job and, and mom right. stays at home and all that stuff. Yeah, that's that's a huge part of it. I mean, so there, there's also a, a, one other thing happening. There's a baby boom. There's, there's huge demand for housing from the war. And then people after the war are getting married and having kids, which also increases the demand for housing. So that's part of why suburbanization, FHA support of it really takes off. I'll speak about race first and then I'll come back to gender. So I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I mean, race comes into this in the U.S. in so many ways, but I think I'll focus mainly on the rhetoric around property values and urban renewal. So 
the federal government in particular in the 50s and 60s is looking at what are sometimes called blighted communities. I don't actually really know what is meant by that, other than somewhat sinister associations you might imagine being behind that, particularly around race and class. But so somebody like Robert Moses, who is this huge transportation planner in New York State in New York City, is looking at particularly lower income communities of color in New York and wanting to build big highways that will connect uh, suburbs to urban cores and is seeing these blighted communities as the best place to build those highways. The goal is to connect suburbanized to the city. And the best the best way to do it is to just sort of essentially get rid of and demolish these communities that are seen as blighted that tend to be Black. So this happens all over the country and in Canada. I was going to say you could think of Halifax yeah. bulldozing Africville. Africville, and, yeah. yep. Hogan's Alley in Vancouver. So Vancouver is notable as kind of one of the few cities on in the U.S. and Canada that doesn't have a highway going right through downtown. And that was partly the, the result of actually uh, a lot of pushback from people who lived in downtown Vancouver. The, the part of the highway that did get built and then did involve demolishing a community was Hogan's Alley, which was a predominantly Black community. In my personal experience, so I I used to live in North Carolina. I got my master's at Duke, and which is located in a town called Durham. Yeah, I visited there this summer for research. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Oh man. Much, but like way more, way more car dependent than like Chicago, for instance, or which was where I was coming from roughly. And Durham, particularly in the early 20th century, had this really thriving black neighborhood. It was called Haytai. It was known as Black Wall Street because you had so many successful black business owners and then uh, in the post-war period, with the federal interstate, with a highway program, they bulldoze a lot of it to build a highway. And it just devastates the community. So race affects urban renewal, or urban renewal is often sort of coded language for policies that really disproportionately affect communities of color in dense urban cores in particular. Race is a huge part of debates over like who gets to essentially belong as a full economic citizen of the U.S. in a way. So late in his presidency, FDR starts talking about a new bill of rights that would include like a right to housing, a sense that as an American, you should have a right to housing. And the FHA actualizes that for some people in a way. When upwardly mobile Black folks try to move into predominantly white suburbs, a lot of white suburbanites resist that, sometimes quite violently. So this is something that Tom Segru, who is a scholar of urban America and of the civil rights movement, actually also from my part of Michigan, incidentally, has written about a bit. For instance, when there's an effort to integrate Levittown. So one thing we haven't talked about yet is also the use of restrictive covenants, which were essentially deeds attached to the sale of a home that said the the new buyer could not sell the property to a certain class of people. This often covered African or Black folks, as well as Jews. And this, this happens in both the U.S. and Canada. So Levittown is built. William Levitt is adamant he does not, he does not sell to African Americans. But when you do have folks try to integrate the neighborhood, other neighbors 
actually sort of violently attack William and Daisy Myers is the name of this black couple trying to integrate this neighborhood. I shouldn't say trying to integrate. They just wanted to move there Mm -hmm. um, to take advantage of, of the benefits of, of this community. But their neighbors start attacking and vandalizing the house in the night. They start yelling things like Gestapo and this is Russia. So a classic sort of red baiting. Here's a change I don't like that I see as an imposition on my freedom. And so claiming that that is socialistic and on sort of less violently, but kind of in the same strain and vein of thought is this concern about property values and this widespread assumption that the property values in a neighborhood will decline if black folks start to move in. So with William Myers, for instance, one of his neighbors, white neighbors talks to a newspaper and he says something about William Myers like, I'm sure he's a perfectly nice guy. He pays his taxes and everything. But every time I see him mow his lawn, I see $2,000 come off the value of my property. And of course, the way that that home buying happens, people need their property values to keep going up to increase the resale value of their homes in the event that they sell and have to pay off what's left of their mortgage. So race is sometimes explicitly and other times in more coded ways. A big part of the question of who gets to take part in this, uh, what's seen as this kind of new, very American form of of life. Yeah, I was thinking about this as well. In, I was thinking about your comments earlier about urban renewal as well. In the context of Toronto, earlier this week, I was walking around Chinatown mm. and I read something about a... Chinese Canadian activist in Toronto who one of the things that they had sort of accomplished for the community was essentially getting the municipal government to not bulldoze as much of Chinatown as it Mm -hmm. wanted to originally and preserving part of the neighborhood. So I think all this to say, I think that this idea of, of this impacting communities of color is, is, a big part of Toronto's history as well. Absolutely. Thank you for that, Lewis. And this is this is an area where I would like to know more of, of how these policies affect other communities that are not considered white or black. So whether it's Asian American or Asian Canadian, Hispanic Americans, how do they fall into, into this? How, how are they interacting with these policies? How do governments treat them in this regard? Or just interacting with, you know, car dependent, suburbia. What what is their role in all of this? So in my work for my my comps field and for a class lecture I gave on the suburbs, I discovered this case of a man in San Francisco, a Chinese American man named Sing Sang, sorry, Sing Sheng, who wanted to move to a suburb of San Francisco in 1953. And he basically put the move to a vote of his potential neighbors. Like, do you think I should move here? Mm. They voted it down. And a number of sociologists, academics came in, wanting to observe, very curious about this. And one thing, one worry that they kept hearing from people in the neighborhood was that, and I'm paraphrasing here, but that essentially if we let Chinese folks into our neighborhood, if we let Asian Americans in, people will either will get confused or somehow they will also let Black folks into our neighborhood. So like there's there's sort of a general fear of racial, of uh, what's it called? Transition is often how FHA manuals refer to it, of, of just sort of 
change in racial dynamics and demographics in Mm. a neighborhood. And I do think this actually does get to gender. In the U.S. in particular, fears around integration, racial integration of residential neighborhoods come down a lot to gender and sex. I think there is a deep worry among many white Americans that their daughters in particular will date, marry, or just generally have intercourse with Black men. And of course, like that is a really long-standing taboo in U.S. history. You see that possibly, I don't know if you see that in your research, Lewis, going back to the mid-19th century. A lot of the people I research uh, are very racist, so it does come (laughs) up, yes, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, like this is the whole mythos around, around lynching. And yeah, so for instance... I think it's in the 1960s, Newsweek conducts a poll of, of Americans and something like 90% of them say they do not want, of white Americans, sorry, 90% of the white Americans surveyed do not want their daughters dating black men. The stigma around this is really deeply rooted and pervasive. And it shows up not only in battles over racial integration, but also in spaces, I'm sorry, residential integration, but also in the integration of other public spaces, particularly Arnold Hirsch and others have shown how swimming pools were a really contested site for racial integration. And of course, swimming pools, I don't know that I would call them super sexualized in the 1950s, but they are a place where people are around each other of different genders in different states of undress. And so I think they're sort of a flashpoint for worries about interracial sex, particularly white women sleeping with black men. And so as public pools are starting to integrate, you see more violence in those pools and also the rise of public pools, sorry, private pools. So more and more homeowners, if they don't want to share a public pool with their black neighbors, will just build their own pool and kind of pull out of the shared public good. I mean, the role of sort of gender in suburbia in the 1950s, I feel like I don't know that I have anything really new to add or say about that, that folks probably don't already know. Gender norms in this period are fairly restrictive. I do think one thing that was surprising for me learning about this period, so, you know, during World War II, you have Rosie the Riveter, a lot of women entering the workforce. And then the idea is that, the idea among a lot of policymakers in particular is that we need to get women out of those jobs because the returning veterans need them. And so, yes, this vision of of the heterosexual married couple with two kids, the father is a breadwinner, and the mom, the wife, stays at home and is the homemaker, who is helped out by all of these kitchen gadgets that Richard Nixon has showed us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, yeah. Thanks, We've, Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's, I mean, he just exemplified them. But, but know, his, just... his whole, actually, his whole rhetoric in that exchange was like, these gadgets make life easier for our housewives. There are some interesting exchanges between Khrushchev and Nixon in that debate around gender, whereas Khrushchev is sort of like, well, our our women can also work. Like they actually have more freedom than yours. They're not confined to the home. But Nixon sort of argues that actually this is the most expansive form of, of freedom and well-being for, for women. But one thing that did interest me is that even though there's there's some retrenchment from the workforce by women in this period there's actually still like women are still in the workforce in some ways 
kind of the explosion of women in the workforce in the 60s and 70s doesn't just come out of nowhere. Mm. And I think it's also good to keep in mind that Black women in particular have like always been in the workforce in the U.S. Yeah. From, from the earliest days after emancipation, often working either as agricultural or as domestic workers, often for as as maids or a sort of household help for for white women in particular and white families. So I do think and this is some something I have to be mindful of sometimes. Thinking about like when I, when we were talking about Americans or the public, who do we mean by that? Like which publics and which Americans, which women? Yeah. I think it's a, an important point that in general the idea of women staying home and being homemakers instead of having like paid employment Mm -hmm. is sort of a middle and upper class ideal that in general working class people often historically have not been able to attain even if they wanted to sure and so you know that disproportionately impacts communities of color but i think in general Women historically have worked a lot more than people think they do, but mm. just don't think about working class people as much historically. Well, but then that also depends on getting a little off topic here. Depends on how you define work. Of course, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You know, f- feminists have been arguing about that one for a while. That household work and emotional labor, in particular, are actual work. They're just not compensated in the marketplace. No, that, that's a very per- fair point. I meant paid employment outside of okay. the home, but sure. Yes. I think this has been really helpful context to understand why our cities are designed this way. Mm-hmm. But I think one thing I'd like to ask you about is what are some of the consequences of the way that we have chosen to design these cities? Because we can imagine there were other ways that we could have chosen to design our cities. And presumably there were opponents to this in the mid 20th century who mm-hmm. wa- preferred cities to be designed a different way. So what are some of the consequences of the choices we've made essentially? Yeah. Wow. There are so many of them. <laughs> yes. Some of which we've, we've sort of gestured toward here. So particularly in the U S given how racialized this is, this has huge consequences for intergenerational wealth and disparities in that between different, often different racial and ethnic groups. We've touched on this a little bit in terms also of, well, some some of the opponents of the style of development raise points that I think are actually still quite salient and relevant. So, for instance, Jane Jacobs is a a fairly widely known figure. She was a, a journalist and a mom in New York City in the 50s and 60s whose neighborhood, she lived in Greenwich Village, and Robert Moses was proposing highways through her neighborhood and she among others campaigned to stop that she also later in life lived in toronto and worked with folks to stop the construction of the spadina expressway Mm. which would have gone right through my neighborhood and actually through my old neighborhood where i used to live which is now has a beautiful ravine park Mm. and her i mean she has a lot of critiques the ones i'm sort of most familiar with have to do with the uses actually of streets parks and sidewalks and basically She's making a point that generally, like, cities are supposed to be for people as a whole and not not cars. Cars are one way that people choose to get around, but, but cities and public spaces, like streets and sidewalks, should be for children, like, people of, of all 
modalities. We might also say today of abilities. So um, if you use a wheelchair or have other mobility limitations, they should be accessible to you too. That they could be sidewalks and front porches can and should be safe places for children to play. Because one of the consequences of this style of development is that most streets are not that way. And it, it can be one of the early critiques of suburbs is that they are atomizing, they're alienating, they separate people from their neighbors. And I don't, I don't know that like dense walkable cities on their own are necessarily antidotes to that, but you are forced up against other people in a way that I, having also lived in the suburbs, I, I wasn't growing up, I would say. Mm-hmm. Okay, when talking about the consequences, some of this will involve my editorializing about the present, but I'll start first with more of the the ones that are statements I can make that are more founded on historical data. So unsurprisingly, as a consequence, home ownership and auto ownership balloon in the U.S. and Canada in the post-war period. Yeah, I think Richard Harris talks about how I think in Canada in the 40s, you had about 1.3 million registered cars, and it's almost three times that by the end of the next decade. So really just a true explosion in this. In terms of how this affects people's everyday lives, assuming your community didn't get bulldozed as part of urban renewal, we see longer commutes. Everything is so spread out, more traffic, which means more traffic accidents. And it's also this form of city planning makes it very hard for local and small businesses to survive, especially with things like minimum parking requirements. So mm. what, what minimum parking requirements would mean is that if you wanted to open a new restaurant, you also have to reserve a certain amount of space for cars and that you, you know, your establishment is responsible for the uptake of that space. And that's quite expensive. And a lot of, a lot of small family owned businesses can afford that cost and also really depend on walkability. Most of their customers, like a lot of their business comes from foot traffic. I mean, this is exactly what I lived in Italy, seeing that, that when you do have dense walkable mixed use neighborhoods. So, you know, I can walk from where I live to a bunch of restaurants and stores, but if you are in car dependent suburbia, you might not be able to really because of how things are arranged. So this is part of the proliferation of big box retailers in the suburbs as well. I mean, there's certainly a kind of more broadly downtown cores immediately in the post-war period start to get hollowed out as a lot of people and jobs decamp for the suburbs. I think there's been kind of a reversal of that in some cities in the last decade in particular, although COVID has also shifted those dynamics. The rise in mass consumption does lead to some environment, like it it does lead to some backlash in that you start to see the environmental movement emerge in the 60s and 70s, sort of looking at levels of consumption and being worried about how this affects the environment. So for instance, Joni Mitchell's song, Big Yellow Taxi, published, uh, not published, but released in 1970, talks about you pave paradise and put up a parking lot. Fun fact. Yeah. Fun fact, Joni Mitchell is from Saskatoon, where I grew up. Really? And she... Hates it. She, <laughs> she, she famously, like, I think the city wanted to put up a monument to her of some kind. Oh. And she was like, do not, <gasps> I do not want a statue oh, of me in no. Saskatoon. She, she really does not like Saskatoon. Oh, no. Do you know why? I want to say, 
I don't remember exactly. I want to say that her critique is mainly about the city's like sort of small-minded racism, which is a fair critique, to be honest, having lived there. Interesting. But I uh, let me look it up. Joni, I'm just going to Google it. That's fascinating. I'm just Googling Joni Mitchell hates Saskatoon. (laughs) Yeah, here's a quote. Quote, Saskatoon has always been an extremely bigoted community. Wow. Okay. Not pulling any punches. All right. (laughs) There you go. Anyway, that's just that's just sort of a that's just sort of an aside. Oh, that's funny. Funny but also sad, I guess. Okay. To to some other consequences that don't involve Joni Mitchell. In terms of just how this affects again kind of the bigger question about what forms of life, like how we can actually live with and, and interact with people and build community, it becomes particularly because of zoning and exclusionary zoning, it becomes very hard in many parts of the U.S. and Canada to build dense, walkable, mixed-use communities like the one that I live in, Mm -hmm. and which are also typical of a lot of other cities around the world, particularly parts of Europe, Japan, many parts of East and South Asia. I remember reading this. I I pulled up the stat as you were saying this because I I remembered this from the pandemic that I'm, I'm quoting from a, this is from about a year ago, somebody shared this, a tweet by a man named Brent Todarian. Oh, I follow him. <laughs> oh, okay. Anyway. And he said, half of business owners on this Toronto street estimated that more than 25% of their customers arrived by car. In fact, it was 4%. Yes. And those who walked or cycled, 72%. Mm-hmm. Retailers routinely overestimate the number of car customers. So yes. I, I think that sort of speaks to the idea that businesses think that they have to cater to cars when really actually that's like a much smaller proportion of their clientele. Yeah. I mean, that speaks to, I think, how deeply entrenched this idea is that cities, businesses and whatnot are primarily for cars and not for people in all of their, you know, multitudinous variety. Yeah. So yes, those kinds of types of neighborhoods become hard to build. It's also very hard for neighborhoods to change, which is in some ways the point of zoning. Because, again, so much of the impetus is to keep property values stable and rising. And there's this perception that actually that, like, if you let somebody run a business out of the ground floor of their home, that that would affect like like in many parts of the U.S. and Canada, you can't just do that. You would have to apply to change the zoning of your property. And that's a whole rigmarole. Yep. So it's very hard for neighborhoods to change and adapt. I am also going to say. And this is where I'm putting on more of my aspiring urbanist hat, slightly more polemical. I do find this argument compelling, which is that car-dependent suburbia is financially unsustainable and bankrupts our communities and municipalities. Mm. So this is an argument that's been made particularly by Charles Marone, who is a former uh, civil engineer. He founded an organization called Strong Towns, which is involved in a variety of sort of community and urban planning projects and one of their main things is basically roads roads and parking in particular they themselves are expensive to build and maintain and they don't actually on their own produce value or taxable taxable value for cities what does that is is people businesses homes and whatnot so when you have all all of that spread out over such a great distance it's simply impossible for that development style to generate enough revenue to actually maintain itself, let alone pay off any of the debt that is incurred when you construct it originally. I find that argument fairly compelling that this is just financially unsustainable. Mm -hmm. 
that's not an argument that historians might make necessarily. I do think there is some good contemporary data to back that up. Right. Um, yeah. So, so problems with municipal finance. And we see that in Toronto. Like the city recently passed a new budget for the year. The Gardner Expressway, which is a highway running along Toronto's lakeshore, often used by suburban commuters, is going to take up something like 40% of the city's operating budget for construction. Never mind that it carries, it carries, some of these figures are disputed, but it carries far, far fewer than 40% of the city's residents or even people in the area. Like it's, you can tell that it's much more, it's not financially the most efficient and sustainable way to move people. Yeah, certainly. I was thinking about this or your comments about this in the context of, did you participate in any of the active TO stuff where they closed down Lakeshore Boulevard? This was, yeah, it was a program that the city initiated during the pandemic. And I think it is continuing. Maybe I don't remember. But the idea was that they shut down. So Toronto has Lakeshore Boulevard, which is the street like right along the lake. It's typically a pretty busy road and on weekends maybe it was just sundays the city i think it was maybe once a month or something like that the city would close the street down and make it available to walkers bikers Mm -hmm. rollerbladers who you know whoever wants to use it and i would go out there and use it quite a bit actually i it was it was really nice and it was very popular and busy yes and it was really funny to see the summer after or the year after the city being like well i don't know if that was really worth doing like i don't that didn't really seem that that good to us i was like wow so many people were using that but it just goes to show that the attitude is really like who the urban design is for right because because the urban design at least in some city councilors view was not for Mm -hmm. these non- car users right who who is it for but also like how they understand their own interests so is it okay if i make a slightly more political advocacy point yeah that's fine okay thanks so okay this is again me taking off my historian hat somewhat and and more thinking about this as an urban dweller so Mm -hmm. going back to like the 413 let's say it's very common for the folks who live in the suburbs who drive think that adding more freeways and lanes of highways will help clear up congestion. Um, And it's been shown over time that that usually doing that helps alleviate congestion for a couple of years or, you know, for a short span of time, but then behaviors change because that, that new mode of transit is so much more feasible, more people start using it and the problem actually gets worse. So I think to your point about like the Lakeshore, whose interests are, is that serving and, how do those folks tend to think of their interests? I think you can could make the case to suburban drivers that actually providing feasible alternatives to driving is how we get people off the road. And that's actually how we deal with congestion and make driving itself even yeah. safer. Like, like I, I, I see that as a win-win for everybody. Whereas a lot of folks who drive, particularly in the suburbs, tend to see that as like an attack on their interests. Yeah, I think in particular, there's also a view that driving is somehow creates economic value and other forms of transportation do not and maybe are for leisure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. But this is like, so in addition to active TO, there was cafe TO during the pandemic, which was the city letting a lot of restaurants and cafes, coffee shops use a space on roads that was previously for parking, but use that actually like for customers. Mm. And 
I know the city was worried about losing money from parking, but those businesses made so did did really quite well. I think on the whole, it made a lot more revenue. And this was a really hard time for the restaurant industry with lockdowns. So like that, that was incredibly necessary. Also, like, I don't know if you went to many of those patios or were just kind of like around them, but like when people are out and about, there's a vibe to a place. Like it's fun to be there. You're like, oh, this is a place where I'd like to be. Yeah. There's, there's a liveliness to this that you can get with when you, okay, again, this is slightly more polemical, but you can get that liveliness when you are thinking about people and less about building exclusively for cars. Uh, You know, businesses are worried that taking out parking is going to hurt them. And actually they make more money when space is used for business than for cars. Yeah. 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 Bringing this back to our original concept for the podcast, right? The the sort of political debates that are ongoing about how we design these cities and these highways and all this stuff. Why do you think the history matters to these debates? Oh, I think it matters so much for a number of reasons. One is that this history, A, it reminds us that all of this stuff is contested and not foreordained. We have, you know, our ancestors and and we as people have made choices in the past and we can make new ones. Which isn't to say, though, there are challenges with that and that's hard. But like this is we don't have to take all of this for granted. I think this history helps us imagine alternative visions. I mean, you and I talked a little bit about how, for me in particular, living in a different country was really, really got me thinking about this. And it's hard, you know, like, I would highly recommend living in another country for at least six months if you can do it. But a lot of people can't, a lot of people don't want to. But historians will sometimes talk about the past as a foreign country. And so I think in some ways, immersing ourselves in this history, it brings to light the things that we take for granted, Mm. that we don't have to take for granted. And also that it brings up questions that I, that we may think were just settled in the past, but that are actually can be contested. Like, what is the purpose of streets and roads in cities in particular? Who are they for? So I think it's really important for imagining alternatives, for asking just some big questions about the fabric of our shared life together and bring those up. I think for folks who have strong feelings about these current issues and want to be involved in the political discourse or as advocates, there are... I think some strategic and tactical lessons you can learn from this history. So thinking about how motordom rebrands itself in terms of freedom and how that's a huge part of its success. One way to look at that is seeing this interest group essentially making its case in language that will resonate with people. In a sense, sort of meeting people where they are and speaking to their interests. And so I think that's, I suspect... For instance, for folks in America who would like to break out of car car centricity, freedom can be a pretty powerful language to talk about that. It's not just about the freedom to drive, but what about the freedom not to have a car? Mm-hmm. What about the freedom to be able to live without a car? Which I, I haven't had a car since I moved to Canada. I love it. I think it's great. It's not for everyone, but it's, you know, it's it's amazing to have the option and it's a real privilege to have the option in large part because of the historical factors we've talked about. One other thing that I think is important about this history, well, there's a lot of things, but one thing I'll say here, I find that for me, it encourages humility. 
in which I think is actually pretty important, especially when disputes are sharp and passionate. I look at urban reformers in the late 19th and 20th centuries who really thought they were doing the right thing by emphasizing spreading things out, getting away from the city, and who weren't wrong to point to some of the unhygienic, really unsanitary and unhealthy conditions of cities at the time. And I think their ideas have had afterlives and consequences that I don't know they would have anticipated or wanted or yeah, I think when I, when I look at how this has played out in the past, it reminds me that like, Oh, I definitely think I'm right when it comes to this stuff, but actually the way that the stuff may play out and potentially, you know, shape people's lives. You just, you can't anticipate that. So I think we have to be humble about the limits of what we believe and what we know. And I think this history encourages us to do that studying this history. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a really important topic. I, I think, as we mentioned at the top, this sort of impacts, ev- I mean, n- some people don't live in cities, right? So, so but I so live in communities. But yeah. yeah, yeah. But, it, you know, the way we sort of design our environment and, and how it has been designed historically, I think, is is so important and so has such broad impacts on us and has such important impacts for what our world is going to look like going forward, right? This is a really important yeah. part of addressing social justice and ameliorating climate change, right? All this sort of stuff. Yeah. It's, it's a it's a huge part of all of this. So okay. I'm really glad we got a chance to talk about this because I think this is yeah. an important topic. Are there any other points that you wanted to mention before sure. we wrap up here? Sure. <laughs> Quite a few, but for the for the sake of, of brevity and concluding, I'll I'll keep it to two. So one is going back to those urban reformers that I mentioned in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. In the U.S., sometimes they're called progressives. They call themselves that. The meaning of that term is contested, but you might have, folks listening might have heard that before. They ask these questions about how our environments shape us kind of morally and ethically. And they come to some conclusions that I think a lot of us would disagree with. I would encourage us to consider that that question is actually quite valid. Mm. Thinking about how does kind of the form of the community that I'm in shape me as a person and my relationship more generally. So I'll put my cards on the table a little bit here and and put in sort of another plug for the, if you're particularly if you're an urban or a suburban dweller, put in a plug for the walkable, dense, mixed-use neighborhood. It occurs to me when I'm just like out on the street, walking to a place, getting on the train, you are, as a pedestrian in this environment in particular, you are constantly negotiating your interests and other people's competing interests all the time. You you do have to be assertive about the space that you take up, but you also have to recognize that other people are in this space and that there are conflicting interests that need to be mediated. And that is sort of like the essential work of politics more broadly, we think about it. So Bernard Crick, political scientist, had this one famous essay where he talks about politics as sort of politics is how we mediate our conflicting interests, basically. And really just living in a dense, walkable environment is really good training in how to do that. I think actually that can affect how we think of ourselves as citizens and neighbors in ways that I think for myself are quite helpful. And I don't know if you quite get that 
when we drive in a car, car-centered environment that assumes that cars' interests are take precedence over everyone else's. Mm. So I would say that. And then I would also say, if you are interested in this, whether it's the history or just the present, get involved in what's happening locally. Check it out. Whether you've got elections coming up, there are probably conversations around development and buildings going up in your community. You might be surprised. One thing I love about this in the present is how I find that it sort of depolarizes me ideologically. It really scrambles, I think, like debates about just how we build healthy communities can really, you might find yourself sympathizing with points of view that you haven't before and finding allies that you didn't expect to. You can make a really good libertarian case against restrictive zoning. You can also make an argument against that based on the housing crisis and we need more homes. And also because of this history, you like, and this is actually something that I would, I would like to do more in my own community. These questions about things like who are streets and public spaces for when, what purpose do they serve are being constantly contested. So there are probably people in your community who are already doing this work. I feel like I, I read often about like, yes, in my backyard groups in places like San Francisco and New York that are sort of trying to be open to development or doing supporting certain policies that like particularly communities of color have, I think in many ways have already been working on like yes fighting highway construction is something that lots of those communities have been doing for a while so yeah I would encourage people to get involved locally and really get the lay of the land all right well this has been a really great conversation thank you so much for joining me Hannah do you have any projects or online presences that you'd like to share with the listeners? I mean, I do. They're fairly minimal. I will, I will plug one thing, which is my employer, Alpha Education. We are actually opening a a peace museum about the Asia Pacific war later this year. So stay tuned for that. Yeah. And other than that, yeah, just, just get involved if you want to. There's, there's so much out there. There's a bunch of like social media and YouTube channels that get into this, but really I think just like, learning your neighborhood. Go do it. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Lewis. That's all for today's interview. Thank you for listening. And thanks to Hannah for joining me. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you get the latest episodes in your feed. And follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram for historical photos related to episodes, new episode announcements, and more. For this episode, I found some really great old photos related to Toronto's urban planning. Photos of things like its suburbs, highways, and streets. And I put those up on our social media pages, so check them out there. We're at Off Campus History on both Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, leaving a review for Off Campus History on your podcast app or telling someone you know about it really helps the show. If you'd like to send me any comments about this or other episodes, leave a comment on one of our social media pages or send me an email at offcampushistory at gmail.com. I'm also happy to hear suggestions for future episode topics and to hear from historians who are interested in appearing on a future episode. Music for the podcast is by Paul B.S. and his Novelty Orchestra, and artwork for the podcast was made by Neth Karia. Thank you again for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time for some more off-campus history. Mm-hmm.